my dear listeners. I'm John Miller, and this is Everybody Trades. And today, you know what I'm thinking about? Well, lots of things, as always. Too much, in fact. But specifically, what am I thinking about? Well, it's how do I get you to realize, and all of us to realize, what does it take to really make a winning bet, a winning stock pick, or what, what really makes a winner in any speculative endeavor? Well, to me, the key question should always be, and the question that I always ask myself is, what is your edge? In other words, what is the information advantage that you have over the market? And by the market, of course, I mean conventional wisdom in this case. The majority of money, the majority of opinion... Group think, yes, conventional wisdom. Whenever you can go against it correctly, that is often the best way to profit in any speculative endeavor. Now, when you just talk about a pure odds and a pure numbers perspective, when you think about the edge, what is your edge? Well, I always like to think about the coin flip. And you know why? Because... Well, I've realized that that's one of the easiest ways for people to understand things. And generally speaking, when you say to your buddy, hey, let's bet on the game. Like if you're a Clemson fan and your buddy is an Alabama fan and you guys were arguing about the national championship game this past January, it's quite likely that one of you would say, well, well, let's bet on it. The Clemson fan, or actually the the Alabama fan would probably say, I'll bet you $20 that my team will beat your team. And the Clemson fan might say, yeah, sure, I'll bet you $20. But in reality, the Alabama fan, at least before the game, had a gigantic edge in his mind. Because if you would have flown to Las Vegas or gotten onto the one of many online brokerages on the internet then you would have found that you could have gotten much better odds if you were a Clemson better. In other words, Clemson was actually almost a 2-1 to underdog, if my memory serves correctly, in that game. And I believe it does because I was on Clemson. I had them to win that game outright. And, of course, Clemson ended up winning quite handily. So what are we saying here? The point is, we're, again, we're talking about the edge. What was the edge? Well, before the game, again, you would have thought the edge was with the Alabama better, right? Because if I would have just done an even money bet, a coin flip, if you will, again, I'm a $20 better on Alabama if they win, and my, my foe, my fellow better, is betting $20 on Clemson, then that's a coin flip. At least that's how we've set up the bet. But Las Vegas was saying it clearly wasn't a coin flip. They were saying that Clemson was the underdog and Alabama was the favorite. So therefore, you would have had to put down much more than $20 to win $20 on Alabama. Something like $40 to $45 perhaps. And indeed, to win that $20 on Clemson, you would have only had to put up like $10 in Las Vegas. So before kickoff... The person who bet on Alabama, in their mind, would have had the edge. But, as we saw the game play out, the person who bet on Clemson had the edge. Because, even though they were the underdog better, even though they got 2-1 to odds, they bet $10 or $20, per se, 
Like, let's say, let's stick with $20. Let's say the Clemson better bet $20, then therefore they won 40 approximately, right? So they actually had the edge. Now, all this is in retrospect, of course. But what am I trying to say, ultimately? Well, take an actual coin flip. Who takes odds on the coin flip? Well, Super Bowl. The Super Bowl betters bet on the coin flip constantly. And, of course, the brokers are more than happy to take their odds. Because why? Well, the coin flip is the ultimate example of the 50-50 proposition. You see, assuming the coin is of sound weight and assuming equal wind, assuming you're flipping the coin in a vacuum, yada, yada, I'm making a bunch of unnecessary qualifications here. Let's just all assume that over the long term that flipping a coin is going to result in essentially a 50-50 proposition. Now, I realize as a Kansas City Chiefs fan that the Chiefs somehow won nine straight coin tosses in the first nine weeks of the season. Yeah, stuff like that's going to happen. You're going to have statistically, you're going to have statistical outliers, random events that result in something like a 50-50 bet, a completely random event like a coin toss going nine straight times in the Kansas City Chiefs' favor. We get that. That sometimes happens. So what Las Vegas does on the Super Bowl coin toss is pretty simple. Sure, they'll let you bet on the coin toss, but they're not going to pay you even money on that. If you think about it, if I just took heads for $50 or $20, whatever it might be, and you took tails for an even amount of money, if we just flipped that coin and traded bets for a 1,000 years, we would basically turn out even is what statistics tell us. So what does Las Vegas do? Well, they take their edge by saying, no, this is a minus 105 bet in terms of American odds. Now, what that means is it's a ratio. So, in other words, if you're going to try to win $100, you're going to have to bet 105 to win. So, what's Vegas getting there? They're getting a big 5% edge is what they're getting on every single one of those bets. Now, again, sure, they could lose nine in a row, but over the long term, if they're taking 5% on what is ostensibly and statistically a 50-50 proposition over the long term, what they need to all they really need to do is just get volume. The more volume that they get, the more money that they will make. Right? So if every time, again, if you're going to pay me if I'm going to pay you $50 every time you get heads and you're going to pay me $60 every time I get tails, one of us is going to get rich and it's not going to be you. You understand what I'm saying? So then it comes down to once you figure out an edge, it doesn't have to be, again, it doesn't have to be a 50% edge. It doesn't have to be a 100% edge. You don't have to know that you're going to win. All you have to know is a few percentage points better than the market, and you can do better, especially with volume. You can crush them. That's the secret. And that's why Las Vegas keeps building casinos. That's why over the long term, they can have a bad Super Bowl. They can have a bad March Madness, a bad NFL weekend. But over the long term, with that statistical edge, they're going to always win over the long term, period. So what you have to figure out, if you're going to be in any kind of speculative endeavor, you have to ask yourself, what is my edge? 
Well, again, getting back to the Clemson and Alabama game, I simply just watched those two quarterfinal matchups, and I just thought that Clemson's defensive line in particular looked ungodly. And I just thought there's no way that this game isn't a coin flip. How can they not have at least as good of a chance with the amount of talent that I saw not only just from Trevor Lawrence, but again, that whole Clemson defense, particularly their front four on that defensive line was really, really impressive. And to me, that was my edge. And again, that's a speculative, completely completely subjective thing that I had in my mind that can only be confirmed in retrospect once you've already made the bet, once you've already put your money where your mouth is. So again, you can have a statistical edge or a numbers edge before the event. Again, if you can find a better price, a better uh, a better a better bet on based on the odds at a different brokerage versus another, then you should take that. That's an edge right there in itself. That's just an on paper edge that you should take. And again, when I was recently trying to change stock brokers and lower my transaction fees. That was another edge that I was attempting to give myself. But unfortunately, that particular broker was not up to snuff for me. And I told them to go pound sand. But again, more importantly and more commonly, what you're going to have to figure out is your own edge, your own speculative edge in your brain. See, it's not going to be as simple as numbers on a piece of paper. You're going to have to make judgments and view patterns, and recognize patterns, and then apply those patterns to future situations, those past events. What does that tell us about the future? These are all incredibly important things, and really it's just all about, again, what is your edge? What do you know that conventional wisdom doesn't? And speaking of analyzing what you know, a daily task that must be undertaken, or at least regularly, if not daily, is something that you have to always analyze your winners and your losers. If you're looking at your stock portfolio, inevitably, if you're running a proper, diverse portfolio of stocks or any type of asset, you're going to have losers and you're going to have winners. And frankly, if you have all of one or the other, you're probably not diverse. But the bottom line is, I think we have to look at the winners and the losers a little bit differently. Now, obviously, your winners, and here's what, let's be very clear about what we're saying here. When I say winners and losers, obviously, we can all see what our winners and losers are in terms of where is the stock trading, where's the market versus where we bought it, right? That's a simple one. But it's much more difficult to figure out fundamentally and based on where you think the stock is going. Now, where do you think, now, which one's a winner and which one's a loser? Because sometimes that stock that's been pounded down for two or three months, well, that one actually is a winner. You just can't see it yet in the stock price. Aha. See, that's where the real key is. You have to figure out again what's your edge? What's your edge on the market? Is the market right or is it wrong? And what I found the longer I get into my career is to cut your losers and let the winners run. And again, it's not about price. It's not about 
how much you're up or how much you're down. But I will say that losing stocks in terms of stocks that are fundamentally a little bit broken, that the earnings are starting to recede, if there's accounting irregularities, whatever it might be, those types of situations tend to get worse before they get better. So it's better to just cut your losses, take a 10, 20% loss, whatever it might be, and move on. Now, on the other hand, if you're down 10, 20% on a winner, and again, by a winner, I mean a company that's doing well, a company that you think is fundamentally sound but hasn't been going great for you in the short term in terms of stock price. Well, you know what? Let, let's get a real-life example here. One of the stocks I bought most recently is Take-Two Interactive, and that is a video game company. Now, you, it's probably most famous for Red Dead Redemption and Red Dead, most recently, Red Dead Redemption 2. Just an absolutely blockbuster of a game that has taken in tons and tons of revenue. And during the most recent sell-off at the end of 2018, I took a small position in Take-Two Interactive. And so far, I'm taking it on the chin ever so slightly with that one, down 10 12% as I speak right now. But you know what? The bottom line is I'm starting to realize I think that I think Take-Two Interactive is doing just fine. I think seasonally, though, this may have been a tough year for video games in general. It's what we have, what we call in the stock business, the video game business in general has tough comps. In other words, tough comparisons to what happened last year. You see, last year's video game season was one of the best in the last few years, buoyed in much, very much by the strength of the Nintendo Switch. And... The Switch's popularity actually carried over into this this video game season as well. But unlike the Switch, we're actually in a much later cycle in terms of the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. You see, those consoles came out earlier than the Switch, and they're also much more conventional. You see, Nintendo tends to go for innovation, and sometimes that works out like it did with the Nintendo 64 and the Nintendo Wii. But then other times, it goes against them, like it did with the Wii U, and to a less extent, the GameCube. But you know what? The Switch has obviously really hit something. It's hit a part of the market that loves not only the Nintendo lineup and the library that it, that the incredible library that it has of games that have been I- iconic brands that have lasted for three decades plus now, from Mario to Donkey Kong, to Zelda, and the list goes on and on and on. Obviously, they also hit the sweet spot with gamers who enjoy not only playing on a console, but taking it with them. And, hey, how about this idea that, wow, what if I could take my console game with me in the form of a handheld? And, indeed, the Switch has hit that market and really made it perform nicely. But the bottom line is, again... This year wasn't quite as good, It just in terms of comparisons to 2017, I should say. Like, eh, the 17-18, let's, let's call it the 17-18 Christmas season versus the 18-19 Christmas season of this year. But again, overall, I think the video game business, in particular Take-Two Interactive, 
is in good shape. The only thing I would worry about in general, because obviously Red Dead Redemption is a gigantic success, and then one of Take-Two's other important properties is the NBA 2K franchise. You see, that has not only been the standard bearer in all of sports games in almost everybody's opinion for the last decade plus, 2K is one of the greatest, most profitable video games out there. And if you notice, but the only worry there would be that, you know what, Take-Two just paid a billion dollars. Yes, that's right, a billion with a B. As, why do people say that anyway? Is billion and million that hard to, to discern? Anyway, $1 billion with a B over seven years for the rights to make NBA basketball games. And you know what? A part of me would go, oh no, this is getting out of control, dear Lord. Except, here's the deal. I don't think video games are going anywhere at all. And not only that, I think there's a whole lot of people in the world who are who live in, say, Africa, for instance. Yeah, there's a lot of people who live in Africa. A billion, at least, right? A lot of them haven't played video games. And you know what? A lot of them haven't been exposed to the NBA either. And you know what? Over the coming years, I don't see the NBA regressing. I really don't. I see huge growth opportunities for them. So I frankly think the deal is a mutually great deal for both the NBA and for Take-Two. And as somebody who's enjoyed the NBA 2K franchise for years, this this latest edition is just mind-blowingly good. It really is. So I'm going to stick with Take-Two, and I'm going to assume that they're going to keep coming up with these incredible properties. And you know what? It's been a few years since we've had a Grand Theft Auto, too. And stunningly, Grand Theft Auto V, which came out in 2013, remains a popular group online game to this day. That just shows the power and the creativity of this company, in my opinion. And I'm sure we'll see Red Dead Redemption 2 have a very long shelf life. Now, another revenue opportunity for the gaming business in general and something that's been debated a lot is, of course, the issue of microtransactions. Now, if you're not a gamer, let me explain that to you, hopefully as best as I can. Now, let's stick with NBA 2K. One of the cool things about NBA 2K is that they have classic teams. Like, you can go back and play with the 1993 Bulls and Michael Jordan, or you can play with Bill Russell's Celtics or Wilt Chamberlain's Lakers, whoever it might be. Just about any, save Charles Barkley, who is a real stickler with his image and rights, I guess. You can play with just about any classic player and team that your mind could possibly imagine. Well, then there's also, now that comes free. Immediately on the game, it's loaded in. You can play with any of those classic teams. But then there's another mode called My Team, where you can start collecting any player in the league via a sort of virtual basketball card, if you will, card collecting type game now traditionally in most video games and certainly in this game you're able to gain experience points by playing games winning games completing practices and various other tasks that are somewhat time consuming and can be a little bit tedious but eventually you will gather up the amount of necessary points to cash in and hey now i have 
LeBron James on my team, or I have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you have this mix of guys from past and present. It's kind of this fun collection mode. But of course, what people push back against is this idea, again, of microtransactions, because instead of spending, again, this tedious time, these tedious hours building up your experience points and, you know, earning, quote-unquote, these players, others will just buy experience points. Because what the heck? See, what's happening is, again, I just said these that 2K, that visual concepts, that Take-Two Interactive, their parent company, just had to pony up a billion dollars for seven years of rights to produce these NBA 2K games. So video games are getting more and more expensive to create all the time. And not only that, meanwhile, you've got more and more competition through your smartphone and mobile gaming, which costs far less than your traditional your traditional desktop and console type games. So this is creating quite a challenge for the industry in general, and one of the ways they're trying to make up for it is with microtransactions. But what people push back against is this idea that, oh, you're paying to win. You're just paying to collect the best team and get the best players and max out your character's attributes or whatever it might be depending on the game. And there's this whole controversy of that and just people being upset with that. And the only thing, and just I totally understand the idea of being annoyed with, okay, I just paid $60 for this game or whatever. How about you just give me everything that's on it? Why do I have to either grind hours and hours and hours to get all the content that I want or you're, what, you're going to make me pay another $25, $30? Like, how about you just ask me what the price is at the beginning and I'll pay that? I totally understand that. I really do. I, I, I feel those people because I am annoyed by the same thing. I find microtransactions a little bit odious and annoying too but again i'm a 36 year old kind of old school gamer this is kind of new and annoying to me we don't like change right especially when it involves opening up our wallet for digital content for pixels but having said all that that speaks to the balance that they're going to have to make the balance of how much can we really charge people before we piss them off Because at some point, especially in the video game industry, which is incredibly competitive, you're going to have to make your consumers happy, or they're going to move on to another game, or another system, or maybe even just, I don't know, abandon your game totally and head over to the beautiful universe of podcasting. Yes, that's right. That's the real entertainment right there. Podcasting. Come on. Buy in, everybody. No, in all seriousness... If you haven't noticed, Spotify is spending a lot of money on podcasts. And you know what? You can follow this here podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and yes, just about any third-party app that you happen to love. And you know what? Hey, if you like this show, spread it with your friends. Hit me with a review, a rating, the whole thing. I'd really appreciate it because you know what? It does help spread the love and spread the show to new people so hey hope you've enjoyed it i'm gonna get out of here and enjoy the rest of my afternoon and i hope you enjoy yours as well so have a good one we'll see you next time on 
Everybody trades. <laughs> <laughs>